Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. I've entitled the morning's message, and this is, by the way, part 2. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you, I'm going to touch on it just briefly. Um, And you can get that uh, uh, from Jerry uh, last week's. Um, Revelation chapter 4, we're just looking at one verse as we're now entering the third division of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> After these things, the Greek here is uh, metatonta, and it literally means after the things that we just studied, chapters 2 and 3, you'll notice are all red letters, and so it's after the things of the church. After these things I look and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things much ta- which must take place after this. I believe this is a picture of the rapture of the church. Uh, I say that because I'll be going to chapter five shortly and we find that the church is in heaven. But before I do that, let's, let me just review a little bit from last week. Um, there is so much typology about the rapture uh, and it carries the same theme in that the Lord always removes the righteous before he judges the wicked. We went last week to Genesis chapter five, which is the genealogy that starts with Adam and goes all the way to Noah. When we got to Enoch, it says Enoch was a certain age and he was not. He walked with God for God took him. So that is our first picture uh, in the Old Testament. It was a type. He had a son named Methuselah, the oldest man in the world, 969 years old. That's getting up there. His, ma- his name actually meant, uh, the meanings, Adam, man, and so on and so forth. They have meanings to their name. Well, Methuselah's meaning for his name was um, when he dies it shall come. And the year that Methuselah died, the flood came. Can you imagine, I like to tell the story, can you imagine being around every time Methuselah got a cold? (laughs) And when you look at the math, the year that Methuselah died was the same year that the flood came. So we have that typology, and then, then in chapter six, um, we talked about Noah, that God was tired of striving with man because his thoughts were continually evil all the time. And we found that it tells us that Noah found grace, and the Lord told Noah that he was going to judge the world and to build an ark, and with, with that uh, as a command, we find that the ark actually became a type of salvation for Noah and his family. Now, we find that we, when we studied it last week, um, I actually said that the ark was a type of Jesus, And my reasoning for that is it tells us that when the ark came to rest after five months, it came to rest on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th of Nisan. And the question is, why would anybody need to know a date of why the ark of the covenant landed on the mountains of Ararat? Well, the 14th of Nisan is Passover. Jesus was the Passover lamb. And Anything of significance happened three days later after he was crucified on a cross? Why would it tell us that the ark came to rest on the 17th of Nisan? It wants us to make that illustration. I took you to a scripture in the New Testament just to show you that I wasn't off base here that it says Adam was a type of Jesus. So there is biblical solid ground that you can stand on and I think some people get carried away with it and they spiritualize almost everything and anything. Um, but I think we're on solid ground when we have hints, hints like that. So we found that um, um, Noah was saved. 
He witnessed to his generation for 120 years. How many converts? Nada. Not a one. They called him a crazy old fool. Why are you building a boat? Well, it's going to rain. Well, what's rain? <laughs> you see, it hadn't rained yet. Uh, the earth was, uh, got it from, from the dew. And so they just thought, no, it's just way out there. And, um, uh, but the day that it began to rain, of course, you know the story. He took seven clean animals of every kind. Russ Miller does an excellent presentation on, about this called The Dinosaurs and Noah's Ark. And I'm sure he'll have it with him when he comes for our conference. So we find after this that in chapter 18 of Genesis, um, his nephew Lot was living in the city of Sodom. And uh, the wickedness of Sodom was so bad that the Lord came down to earth with two angels, go to Abraham's house, um, Abraham begs them to stay and have a meal. They do. But then the two angels get up and they start walking towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Abraham is concerned because his left nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And what I'm about to you, to you if you're taking notes is Genesis 18, 23 to 26. The Lord and Noah are having this conversation. Abraham came near and said, Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the sake of the 50? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall you judge? Shall the judge of all the earth not do right? So, He goes on to say, so the Lord said, if I find 50 in Sodom, I will spare them for the sake of the 50. Well, for those of you here last week, you know we went from 45 to 40, 30, 35 to 30, all the way down to 10. And he said, Lord, don't get frustrated with me. Let me speak one more time. Would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there were only 10 righteous people? He says, no. So why must there be a rapture? Here's the answer. We're talking this morning about a period of time, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period. It's the wrath of the lamb. And the reason there has to be a rapture is the Lord has to remove the righteous before he can judge the wicked. And that's why there has to be a rapture. um, We read, as we, we get into this this morning, Um, This week, this morning, we'll be looking at the rapture from a New Testament perspective um, because last week we gave the typologies that I just gave here this morning briefly uh, from the Old Testament. This morning's going to be, except for one verse out of uh, Isaiah, um, it'll be a New Testament study on the rapture of the church. We will look at four different views and give you four different reasons why only the pre-trib view is really the only biblical view. We're entering the main section of the book, chapter four through 19. Uh, It is the close of the testimony of the church. And uh, we just read our verse, after these things, what things? After the things of the church, when the church is removed. So I do see Revelation 4, verse 1, even though it's John that's taken, it says, come up here. Um, John was obviously a part of the church. Let me just clear up for some of you that are hearing this for the first time or you're on live stream and you came from the denomination that I came out of. Um, They don't hold, like I said, to a literal view of the book. And... So some false views concerning the rapture, um, that the rapture is the same as the second coming is one of the false teachings that's out there today. At the rapture, Jesus comes for his church in the air, while at the second coming, he comes to the earth with his own. Now, to make this easy for you to understand, I'm gonna give you a visual. 
we'll put it up on screen. It's been up before, but basically it lays out, and if you want to get a copy of this, we'll, um, we, we can get them to you. On one side you have scriptures that validate the rapture, and on the other side you have scriptures that validate the second coming. At the rapture, it's a translation of all believers, and it can be from any denomination as long as they have a personal relationship with Jesus. When Paul was talking about communion this morning, he says, we have open communion. And uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and have accepted him as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to have communion with us. And so the rapture is the, the taking up of all believers. At the second coming, there is no taking up. There's only a coming down. Um, then the translated believers go to heaven but in the second coming uh, they return to the earth with the Lord Uh, with the rapture uh, the earth is not judged they're taken out because the judgment is coming in the second coming the earth is judged it's the first thing that the Lord does at at the end of the seven year period of time and then the rapture is any moment and it's signless. I should clarify that the Lord did tell us to look for certain signs that would tell us that we're close. I think the regathering of the nation of Israel, we'll get to that in a moment as one of them. At the second coming, uh, it follows definite predicted signs. Um, This one I had to scratch out and write in Isaiah 26. There is no rapture mentioned in the Old Testament. I disagree with that, and I'll take you to that verse later. Uh, The second coming, however, is predicted often in the Old Testament. Uh, The rapture is before the day of wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and the second coming actually concludes uh, the day of wrath. At the rapture, he comes in the air for his own, his bride. At the second coming, he comes to the earth with his own, his bride. Scriptures to validate that. Uh, At the rapture, only his own see him. At the second coming, it says every eye will see him. Matthew 24 should be added to that verse. At the rapture, the tribulation begins. At the second coming, the millennial kingdom begins. There are four different views that people have about the rapture of the church. Uh, There's the mid-trib rapture. That simply means that it takes place in the middle, three and a half years into the tribulation period. There is the post-trib. That rapture takes place at the end of the seven-year period of time. There is the pre-wrath position at some point into the tribulation, but before the wrath begins. And then the pre-trib view Um, is what we hold to and and, uh, teach at Calvary, uh, is the only view that holds to an imminent, any moment, return of Jesus. This morning, as as we get into this, I'm gonna look at uh, four different areas, four different distinctions, Um, and this is the first one, and I wish uh, I have a paper that, that I'm gonna give you access to this is such an in-depth subject, and um, the different points of view, uh, there's much written on all sides. Um, I'm primarily going to point out some of the objections that I have, but uh, with this paper handed out, uh, it really gets into a lot of the Greek and a lot of the different positions, and we'll have that available for you later. So only number one, why I believe that um, the pre-trib view is a correct biblical view. It's the only the pre-trib view has a church out of the seven-year tribulation. All of the other views, pre-wrath, mid-trib, and post, are all in that seven-year period of time. And with that being said, um, I'm going to ask you to turn back to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. And to me, this is one of the most compelling verses that makes this point. And while I'm doing that, I'm also gonna put up Sir Robert Anderson's chart 
of the Daniel 70th week because that's what we have in, that's what we're going to be reading here. So we'll pick it up. Yep, there it is. Sir Robert Anderson was the head of Scotland Yard and he was the first one to come out with the timing of, um, of this chart that you're looking at here. So let's, of course, uh, Daniel 9 is probably one of the most important chapters uh, in the Bible because it tells us to the day when Jesus Christ would allow himself to be worshipped as the Messiah, to the day. But what before Gabriel answers his prayer, he gives us the time frame, but more importantly what I want to point out to you is who he has in view here. And in Daniel 9 verse 24, it says 70 weeks, in other words that would be 490 years, or 70 weeks, um, are determined, notice, for your people and for your holy city. This is extremely important to understand because as we talk about Daniel's 70th week, it is only referring to Jewish people, to your people and to the holy city. And then it tells the six things that are gonna be accomplished during that period of time. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will be 69 of those weeks, which is, if you do it, what Sir Robert Anderson was the first one to do the math on that. Um, You have to have a starting date, obviously. If you're taking notes, that's Nehemiah chapter two, where Nehemiah gets a decree from Artaxerxes, and um, from there, on that date, uh, he um, takes it out and brings us through 173,880 days without getting really in-depth here, and it brings us to April 632 AD. We call it Palm Sunday. That's when Jesus was riding that donkey, and they were quoting Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it really ticked off the religious leaders. And they said, rebuke your followers. They actually think you're the Messiah. Now up until this time, the Lord was really low key allowing people to worship him. He would heal somebody. And then he'd say, don't tell anybody. He says, my hour isn't come yet. Not this time. When they were quoting Psalm 118 where it says, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made a special day, and we're gonna rejoice and be glad in it. And he said, if they don't worship me today, then the rocks are immediately gonna cry out because somebody was gonna be praising the Lord that day. Why? Because God's word has to come to pass. April 6, 32 AD. Then it goes on to say, now after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be uh, cut off. In other words, after the... um, 69 weeks have been fulfilled. That's 483 years from the beginning of this. And then it says he will be cut off. And the word there literally means executed, but then it says, but not for himself. That's exactly what the gospel is, my friend. Jesus Christ was executed, but not for himself. He was executed for me, and he was executed for you. Good place for an amen. Daniel talked about it here, Daniel died. When he comes, when the Messiah comes, he's gonna be executed, but not for himself. And then it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, Jesus talked about this in Luke 19. He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation, this is what's gonna happen. Jerusalem's gonna be surrounded by its enemies, and there's not gonna be one stone left upon another. That was fulfilled in 70 AD by the 10th Roman Legion. So if I would read it with that, now looking back at it, in hindsight, it says after Messiah is cut off, the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is gonna be in verse 27. It's a reference to the Antichrist, 
and why we teach that the Antichrist has to come from the revived Roman Empire. Who destroyed Jerusalem? The Romans. So he's going to come out of that lineage, is what that's saying. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, that's history. The end of it will be with a flood until the end of it wars and desolations are determined. Now, God owes Israel one week. And this is very important for our study on the rapture this morning. Chapter nine is about what? Daniel's people and Jerusalem in particular. Between verse 26 and 27, we have a gap in time. That gap in time we're living in right now. We are in between verses 26 and 29. Then he, the he goes back to verse 26. He's the prince who is to come, future tense. He then, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many, and this is so important that you get this, guys, for one week. The tribulation period, and we will know the Antichrist when he comes, because the first thing that will happen is he will sign a peace agreement with Israel, giving them permission to rebuild their temple, and we'll get into that when we get in 2 Thessalonians. But it's important that we understand we're talking about a seven-year period of time uh, that we will know who he is when he signs this peace treaty. I heard it last week in the news that they're talking about revisiting the Oslo Accord. Remember Arafat? And uh, pretty much gave them everything they wanted. That was quite a few years ago. But they're talking about reviving it. You know how many years that was good for? Seven years. But they never went through with it. So that's just the chatter that's going on as they're talking about the events in the Middle East. But then in the middle of the week, all right, half of seven is three and a half, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. My main point that I want to make in going to Daniel 9 is twofold that we do not have Gentiles in view here. We're talking about Jewish people. Why? Because God owes them seven. Only 69 of of the 70 weeks are fulfilled and the tribulation period is exactly a seven year period of time. And then I wanna quote, if you're taking notes, uh, the different names for this um, uh, tribulation. It's from Jeremiah chapter 30 verse five. It says, for thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces are turned pale? Alas, for that day is great so that there is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's trouble but he will be saved out of it. So now Jeremiah is telling us it's not the time of the Gentiles' trouble, no. Clearly he's talking about Jewish people. Everybody with me? That's Jeremiah 30. It will be a time of Jacob's trouble. We also call Jesus verifying what Daniel's telling us here. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Then in parentheses, whosoever reads, let him understand. What does that mean? It means you better have Daniel 9 down pretty good so that you can connect the dots. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's where he breaks his seven-year agreement with the nation of Israel. It's called the abomination of desolation. And again, um, Jeremiah 30 calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. So I'm... going out of my way to um, point out that the church has no part of this time frame. And the church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. It is mentioned once, matter of fact, let's go there. Go to Revelation chapter five, just one chapter away from four. It's mentioned, I believe, one time in chapter five, and then from verses six to 19, the church is mentioned zero times. 
No mention of the church whatsoever. So in chapter five, then we'll be there uh, in a couple weeks. Um, In chapter five, we have Jesus taking the scroll that has seven seals out of the Father's hands. And um, a group of people in verse nine, they sang a new song. So we, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. It says, for you were slain, that's a reference to Jesus, and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Notice, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nations. Those who say that this is only speaking, the ones that are speaking are the, the 12 elders that are around the throne. Um, you have to have more than 12 if, you're, if they're gonna be from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Only the church can sing this song. And so I find this one verse, uh, the angels are going to be up next, but uh, they don't talk about redemption and being redeemed. And that was one of the promises that the Lord made to the church, that we would rule and reign with him during the uh, millennial kingdom age. All right, I promised you that one verse from the Old Testament that I do believe is a rapture verse. It's Isaiah chapter 26. So if you would go there with me. Again, what I want in this first point that we're making is that um, it's a seven-year period of time that the church will not be involved in. It is not uncommon for the Lord to throw prophecy in the middle of the chapter. Um, We find it with um, Zechariah, the prophecy of Jesus riding a donkey. Um, We find it here. Let's pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 26, 19. The Lord says, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. And your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth will cast out the dead. And then he says, come my people, enter your chambers, and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is past. I said there's many names for the great tribulation. Indignation happens to be one of them. So what is he saying? He's saying, come my people, enter your chambers. Um, The the Gentiles are mentioned many times in the Old Testament. He's gonna be a light to the Gentiles. Um, And stay in your chambers until the indignation is past. Why? For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and I, and I will no more cover her slain. If you're taking notes, this is a rapture verse. John 14, verse one tells us, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's gonna be an, a major point that we're gonna make this morning. Don't be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That chamber, I believe, is Isaiah 26. My people, hide yourself in your chambers, oh, just for a little moment. I believe that little moment is a seven-year period of time. Compared to 6,000 years, that's a little period of time. Why? Well, the Lord's gonna come out of his place and he's going to punish the inhabitants of the earth. But where are his people? Hidden away in their chamber. During what? That little moment. They're not a part of that seven-year scenario. And and, um, again, if you're taking notes, uh, I believe that is a rapture. I think I stole it from Chuck Missler, actually, if I remember right. Um, Point two. The pre-trib view of the rapture is the only view that teaches that the rapture is imminent or that it could happen at any time. 
all the other positions. Only the pre-trib view says that the rapture could happen today. So if you're mid-trib, pre-trib, pre-wrath or post, what you cannot do is put a perhaps today bumper sticker on the back of your car. (laughs) You can't do it. And we often say that, don't we? Perhaps today. There's this anticipation. And I'm all for the Lord coming before this Bible study's over. And so the question is, does the New Testament actually teach? Some people say, oh, the rapture, that didn't start till the 1800s with Darby. Well, that's nonsense. Paul taught the rapture to Thessalonians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it's clearly taught. Um, when we get to Matthew 24, that's really, uh, even some of my pre-trib uh, friends have problems with um, the rapture in Matthew 24. Dave Hutt doesn't. Uh, Chuck Smith doesn't. And 90% of the Calvary chapels around the world don't. But again, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Question, does, does the pre-trib teach that it is imminent, which means it could literally happen at any moment. If you're taking notes, jot down Titus 2.11. It tells us, for the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. And then it says, looking for the blessed hope. That's present tense. And the blessed hope is a reference to the rapture of the church. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and and, uh, purify unto himself a peculiar people. I look out there, you guys look pretty peculiar to me. (laughs) And zealous of good works. These things says speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise you. Strong words. Uh, Looking for the blessed hope. I think we had that as one of the themes for one of our prophecy conference. All the other views, without exception, say it can only take place after the Antichrist is revealed. Turn with me to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Some of the very most important verses on on the rapture of the church. The reason Paul was only in Thessalonica for less than a month, and he's going to chide them in just a bit because they had forgotten what Paul had talked to them about the day of the Lord, which is that seven-year period of time and the rapture of the church. But my attitude is, Paul, cut them some slack. I mean, they're, they're baby Christians, they're three weeks old in the Lord. So now Paul has to write Second Thessalonians because they're confused and they're afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid they missed the rapture and because of our great persecution, they actually thought they were in the tribulation. So let's pick it up in verse one. It says, but... Brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, rapture verse, we ask you, we don't want you to be shaken in mind or troubled. Now, what was upsetting them is evidently somebody, either by spirit or by a word or by a letter, as though it was from us that the day of Christ had come. They thought, oh man, we're getting persecuted like crazy. We must have missed the rapture and now we're in the day of the Lord. And so in verse one, a rapture passage, uh, Paul's saying, simmer down, simmer down, simmer down. Um, don't, whoever started this rumor that you guys are in the day of the Lord, don't think it came from us because it didn't. And then he goes on to give a series of events that have to take place before they enter into this period of time. Don't let anyone deceive you by any means for that day, the the indignation, Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation, will not come unless the falling away comes first. There will be a a general, the word is apostasia, it means um, deception in the last days. 
It means, um, boy, our young people and the schools that they're coming out of, even Christian Bible schools, um, they're being taught a social gospel, a dumbed-down gospel, and that's the generation that's coming into power. And actually, our president is quite concerned about the millennials, and uh, as they're, they're coming in age, and some of us, us that are older, um, I think it all, a lot hinges on what happens in November. And if Trump isn't elected, I think it's all over. And um, boy, could I get sidetracked on that one, huh? But there's a lot that that's playing in. But a part of what we're seeing today, and you don't need me to tell you because you can see it yourself, is a falling away from solid biblical doctrine. And that's what's being said here. In numbers, but also in the quality of compromising with this book, adding to it or taking away from it. So that's the first thing. When you see that begin to happen. Uh, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Well, this goes back to Daniel 9. We're talking about the Antichrist. In other words, that day isn't going to come until the Antichrist comes. And that's, if you're taking notes, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. When the first seal is opened, that's the first thing you see. Is the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist. So basically what Paul is saying here is the day of the Lord can't come until the Antichrist signs that peace agreement at the beginning of the seven-year period of time, and he breaks it in the middle, and that's basically what Paul is saying here. Who, and then he clarifies, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God so that he's worshiped and sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Uh, one of the views of the, see the, the mid-trib or pre-trib, say that this has to happen first, and then the rapture takes place. Well, you're really gonna have to do a lot of juggling with Daniel chapter nine, and getting away from that, that seven years, and who that it's for, and who it's designated to. And then I, I sort of laugh at verse five, Well, first of all, it tells us that he gives Israel permission to build the temple. Why? Because he's sitting in the temple and showing himself that he is God. In verse five, I chuckle at, don't you guys remember these things when I was with you and um, the things that I told you? Now, he's referring uh, back to uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, but let me read on just a little bit. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Question, is lawlessness already at work in our country today? See, these are what I call birth pains. And the closer we get, the analogy is, if you're a woman having a baby, they're more intense and they're closer together. And that's what we see actually happening today, lawless, lawlessness. And um, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now is restrains. In other words, there's something holding it from breaking out completely. Uh, until he, it's in the masculine here, is taken out of the way. So whatever it is, the he here who is restraining is holding let's say, the floodgates of the dam from just all unrighteousness and lawlessness happening. So what the question rises is, and there's different views that they have on who this is. I clearly believe it's a picture of the Holy Spirit who's living inside of the believer. Well, hold on, Dwight. Are you telling us that the Holy Spirit is gonna be taken from the earth? No, I'm saying that the Holy Spirit who dwells in a born-again believer the born-again believer is going to be taken out, but you can't remove the Holy Spirit from anywhere, period. David said, where can I go from your spirit? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. If I take the farthest swings of the ocean, you're there, there. You're here, there, and everywhere. I had to get that old Beatles song in there somehow. <laughs> God's spirit is what we call omnipresent, Okay. Omnipresent means, and this is, this is an important point that I'm bringing up right now, because those who hold to the pre-trib view, at least from what the research that I did this week, believes that the restrainer is none other than Michael 
the archangel. That's who they teach is a restraining force in this verse here. Well, I have a big problem with that. And my problem is Michael is not omnipresent. He's singular, and he can only be in one place at one time. Remember Daniel chapter 10? He's the one that got Daniel's information from the, the, the prince of Persia, which was a demonic being. So uh, Michael says, got to take off because I got another job to do somewhere else. Remember, with the prince of Greece? So my problem here is what's restraining has to be worldwide restraint. And the church of Jesus Christ is worldwide. And so that's what I believe we have in view here. Um, And when the church is basically taken out, um, then the lawless one will be revealed, and that's the order that I see in Revelation, beginning with it, whom the Lord will consume with the brightness of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That is the fate of the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now, I wish I could tell you what this is. I really don't know. I have my suspicions. We're, we're talking about, I'm, I've seen a couple stories this week. Matter of fact, somebody had one in the prayer room this morning about aliens building the pyramids. <laughs> but listen, um, sci-fi movies have become very, very popular and influential in our culture. People still talk about Area 51 with a lot of suspicion. What could the lie possibly be? Well, you, you humans were about to destroy yourself and we had to, we, we put you here in the first place. We had to intervene in, in your history or you would all destroy yourself. You have to have a one world government. You have to have a one world religion. Or you guys are just gonna all kill yourselves. Now what I just said is completely speculative on my part. And um, you can come up with your own speculation. How is that? But whatever it is, it deceives the whole world. I believe the whole world is being deceived right now. I do, I believe that. I believe the, something has happened that has caused the entire world to be deceived. So when I read this verse here, I don't have a problem with it because I'm actually seeing the result of it right now. A deception of unprecedented proportions. All right, um, let's continue on. So in Second Thessalonians, the, the thought here is that um, the falling away, um, we've covered most of this. So this point in point two, so only after the Holy Spirit in the church is removed can the Antichrist be revealed. Um, that brings us to the third reason Uh, the correct view for the rapture can only be the pre-trib is because it's the only one that brings hope and comfort to the believers. Now, if you're still in 2 Thessalonians chapter two, remember, this church is all shook up and they're worried and concerned. So what does Paul do? He goes, no, this has got to happen, this has got to happen, this has got to happen. Don't you remember, guys? What was with you? I I told you these things. And then, after he has reassured them, um, he goes down, if you go down to verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 2, and for this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they would believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God, and he tells them in verse 15, just stand strong, hang in there. And then notice the last verse, verse 17. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and works. The pre-trib rapture is the only one that um, has comfort and hope attributed to it. Go to 1 Thessalonians, and these are, of course, uh, very famous rapture verses, chapter 4. 
So when Paul was saying, don't you remember when I was with you, I told you things? Well, this is what we're going to read about. It's one of the main rapture verses here. Verses 13 through 18 are rapture verses, and all of chapter 5 is about the day of the Lord. So, verse 13, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. Your loved ones who are saved will come with him when, when he comes again. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, and that's where we get the word rapture from, that word caught up, in, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, scare one another to death with these words. <laughs> what, what is the main point of the preacher of rapture? Therefore, comfort one another. Don't worry about it. There's comfort and hope when you have the perspective of that we're not going to enter into this period of time. Now, all of chapter five that I'm not going to read, but I'm just going to touch on, is about, and my subtitle here is, the day of the Lord. It is about the tribulation. And he, he's, he said, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as, as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, and this is um, one of the things that the Antichrist actually tries to declare, that he's the man for the hour, to explain away the unthinkable. Millions of people have disappeared. And somehow he's gonna have an answer for it that the Bible calls the lie. And if you think this is shaking people up, what happens when millions of people in a moment in a twinkling of an eye are taken up? They're gonna have some sleepless nights and they'll be open to anybody's suggestion if it brings any sort of comfort or help. My point here is, church, you should know Daniel 9. You should know the length of time, and you should know that you're going to be removed from it. And that's why he says in verse verse 9 is very important when he talks about the day of the Lord. For God did not appoint you to wrath. If you're taking notes, Revelation 6 verse 17 says that the tribulation period is the wrath of the Lamb. Some would have you think it's the wrath of man or the wrath of Satan. No, it's clearly the wrath of the Lamb. And verse nine says, for God has not appointed you to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Lord Jesus Christ. Then he sums it up in verse 11 by saying, therefore, because you're not appointed to wrath, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. Again, if you put the church in any part of, um, of the tribulation, um, it's not very comforting. And let me show you what I mean. Turn to Revelation chapter six. Revelation chapter six. We have the first seal being opened, the Antichrist. We have the second seal being opened and... Um, we have wars, and we have the third seal being opened, and we have uh, famine. And uh, when the fourth seal was opened, we have death. So we are before post-trib, mid-trib, and pre-trib in these verses. And we read in verse seven, when the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures saying, come and see. And behold, a pale horse, and the name of on him who sat was death, and hell followed him. And power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and the beasts of the earth. Here's my point. 
If there's eight billion people roughly in the world today, one quarter of that is two billion people who are gonna die just after, well, we get to the fourth seal. Sorry, I don't find too much comfort in that. Anybody else find comfort in that? No. It doesn't, it simply doesn't make common sense to say that we're gonna have two billion people die by war, famine, and um, the sword, and um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So I don't find comfort in that. At this time, I had to do research on the other points of view, and I came across this article, and I thought it was a fair article because the author's name is Eric Duman, D-O-U-M-A, and um, uh, we have these printed up, and because this can be a very contentious topic in many circles, especially if you're on Facebook, which I am not, <laughs> but I want to read something before I get into talking about this particular view of the rapture, of, of the pre-trib or pre-wrath point of view. Uh, he's, I'm just going to read a paragraph. Um, before I be, begin presenting my position, I want to extend a word of gratitude to my pre-wrath friends, Alan Kushner and Ryan Hebina. Although this paper is a critique of their eschatological position, eschatology is a study of last day things, I consider these men to be brothers in Christ with whom I am similar views in 99.9% of our theology. Furthermore, since I regard the issue of the timing of the rapture to be a perpetual one, an important issue to be sure, but not one to break fellowship over, I want those of the pre-wrath side to understand the spirit of this critique. In times past, I was quite smitten with the pre-wrath position, especially the evidence I believed in 2 Thessalonians 2, one through eight, gave to their position. But the more I studied, however, and the more I've come to see problems with this position, I hope my pre-wrath friends see this critique as a way of pushing the ball down the field in an attempt to help us move closer to the truth that the scripture teaches. The, le- the letter is scholarly, it is well-written, and the, all people involved know their Greek pretty well. And it's way too much for me to touch on, but there's copies out on a table and you can pick one up and read it on your own. I read it this morning again. It took me 10 minutes at the longest. So it's not a long read, but it gets into a lot of detail, and um, uh, he makes some very, very excellent points. So um, as you look at Matthew chapter 24, uh, let's, let's go back to Matthew 24, and I've got to keep going here. The pre-wrath position on Matthew 24 is they're equating it, according to this gentleman here, to the seal judgments that we just talked about. Matthew 24 talks about wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. And they're saying that this takes place only when the tribulation begins. And they take Matthew 24 and sort of overlay it. Is everybody with me? In Revelation 6, and they say that's the fulfillment of it. No, I I do not agree with that position because if you've done your homework on famines and earthquakes lately, uh, we have famines of unprecedented, we had 25,000 earthquakes in Alaska in the last month. And it's amazing if you just do a little research, just do a little research on famines. And what about deception and persecution? Do you know that one million Christians have been martyred in the last 10 years? I would call that persecution. So I see that happening now and building up to. So what we have in view here is basically the disciples asking Jesus two simple questions. What is the sign of your coming in verse two? And notice that it's sign singular and the end of the age, two different questions. Jesus goes on and lays out four times about deception uh, all the way up. This is not in a chronological order, but neither is the book of Daniel, neither is the book of Revelation. 17 
and 18 occur after the fact. They're just further information, but they happen during the tribulation. Um, At least three times in the book of Daniel, you have Daniel uh, talking about the the third year of Belshazzar or the, the third year of Cyrus, and they're not in a chronological order. So to those who hold to the argument that this has to be in a chronological order, I don't think so. Um, because what we have uh, here in verse 27 is clearly a reference to the second coming of Christ in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That's clearly the second coming. But it says they want to know what is the sign. I believe the sign, singular, is the parable of the, of the fig tree. Um, Pastor Chuck believed it so much, he made a movie. It's still online, you can still get it. It's called The Parable of the Fig Tree, and it's about the regathering of the nation of Israel. I believe the biggest miracle in our lifetime is the state of Israel coming back and becoming a nation again. And what the parable says, the generation that sees that happen, remember, they want to know what's the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age. And it tells us here that this generation will not pass away till all things are fulfilled. I believe it's been 72 years since Israel's become a nation, and we've watched the escalation of the other signs, wars, rumors, false teachers, intensify and grow. But it brings us to uh, the next verse, which I believe... Uh, and let me, let me just say at this point, there's many in the pre-tribulational camp that do not believe that the rapture is found on the Olivet Discourse. And that includes 24 and 25. That's what the Olivet Discourse is. And I beg to differ with them, and I do, and we still love each other anyway. <laughs> And so the next verse it reads, but of that day and hour no one knows, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Let me tell you why I think this is a rapture verse. I can tell you to the very day that Daniel said Jesus would allow himself to be worshiped. To the day, his first coming. If you were here last Wednesday night, we were finishing Daniel chapter 12. And we closed the study by saying, I can tell you the very day Jesus is going to come the second time, to the day. Because if you're around, and I pray you're not around, and you see the abomination of desolation, if you're taking notes, it's Daniel 12. It says, 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation. In Matthew 24, I read, immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus comes immediately. And then in verse 31, it, it, it tells us in Daniel 12, so what I'm saying is I know the day of his first coming and I know the day of his second coming. So that tells me, verse 36, but of that day, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. I believe this is a rapture verse. Dave Hunt gave the best Bible study I've ever heard on the rapture in Matthew 24 at a pre-trib conference down in Dallas. And I tried to dig it up, but I couldn't find it. It's it's been too many years since he he gave it. But he says, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, um, they didn't believe his, Noah's story. Uh, they blew him off. Life was normal for them. Let me ask you a question. Is life anything but normal when we have Jesus coming at the second coming? The last judgment is hailstones that weigh 140 pounds coming down from heaven and pretty much demolishing everything on planet Earth. Does that sound like you're planning your wedding on that day? I don't think so. My point is it's not life is normal. It says men will be rare during this period of time. This picture here, and those who make the argument that it was um, um, the unrighteous who were t- 
taken out. No, Peter clearly tells us, and the picture that we see is that they were in the ark, the righteous were taken out, and the wicked were judged. And they did not know until a flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Two men will be working at Walmart. One will be taken, and one will be left. Well, I gotta make it relevant. (laughs) Or they're gonna accuse me of not being relevant, okay? Two men will, two women will be grinding at, at the mill. One will be taken, and the other one left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. I can make an argument for I know the Lord is coming at the second coming. I believe these are rapture verses. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't expect him. Again, it's, it's when you're planning your, your week and you're, you're laying things out and it's at any moment it could happen. Now, according to, um, well, the other side of the coin here is people who don't hold to the preacher of view can actually, if you look at verse um, 48, he warns against those who say, the Lord is delaying his coming. I think a certain attitude could creep in by saying, eh, you don't have to worry about it. Um, I'll get my act together when the Antichrist is revealed. Until then, I'm gonna just sort of just slide along. That's the thought here. But on the other hand, if you turn to um, 1 John, let's turn to 1 John 3. I'm gonna wrap this up here. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3 the first three verses tells us, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians tells us now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And everyone who has this hope, what hope? I believe the hope of the rapture of the church. Everybody who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, it carries the idea is I better watch my P's and Q's, the Lord could come today. And I don't want to be walking in a place that he is, uh, it's an incentive uh, for purity, uh, where the other views, I think, could have just the opposite effect. Let me close with this. I did a funeral on Thursday for Sylvia Hoffensberger. I closed it by saying, everyone is going to die. But the real issue is where we go when we die. And when we, we do a funeral, I like the people to think about their own mortality. That you're not gonna live forever. Well, let me say that differently. Everybody here is gonna live forever. Do you know that? You have a spirit, you have a soul, you're gonna live forever. And we read 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, we know when this tent is destroyed that we have a home in heaven not made with hands, eternal. And to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. So. Let's close with 1 Corinthians 15 because it is the main rapture verse that I quoted at the funeral. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. You see, we aren't all gonna die. There is one generation that is never gonna experience death. And Paul speaks about it here for the first time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. The word there is metamorphosis, what happens to a butterfly. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 
I believe we're that generation, my friends. And as we close up this study on the rapture, I want to close it with the last verse, verse 56, where it says, therefore, in light of everything gone through, uh, the pre-trib wrath is the only one that's imminent. That means it can happen today. It's the only one that promises us, uh, us comfort and hope. And it's the only one that is outside that seven-year period of time. All the other positions put themselves in that seven-year period of time, which I believe is not biblical at all. So what can I leave you with? The last verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and I'll say Maranatha, perhaps today. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for those that are are patient with a lengthy study. I know we needed two parts, part one and part two, to cover it halfway decently. So Lord, we commit now the teaching of your word, and uh, we thank you for the glorious hope. And we pray, Lord, that your word would not return void this morning, and that um, you would be glorified through it all, that you love us so much, that as your word tells us that you do have a plan and a provision and the Lord knows how to rescue those who are his. And we thank you for that blessed hope. In Jesus' name, amen.